Welcome to Brandon Avat. We have Aaron Fassett to talk to us about the movie Tenant. Um, we have recorded this intro at the end of the episode to try and mirror some of the palindromic features in the film. Um, <laughs> I can guarantee you that this episode turned out excellently um, because I have traveled into the past to listen to what Aaron has said. And boy, oh boy, for a movie that's however confusing, um, you're going to be thoroughly enlightened. I can guarantee this because I've already been there. For Tenet, I called Memento, um, Inception, and Interstellar Nolan's metaphysical masterpieces because what he was doing in all those movies was playing around with dimensionality. Oh. The way I perceive about it is like this. In Memento, what he does is he plays around or he inverts, to use Tenet's language, he inverts the, narr the linear narrative structure. Right? So he, he tells the, the normal story forwards backwards the way we normally tell it, but he tells it the other way. All right, so that's the one. So now he's played with horizontal dimensions. With Inception, what does he do? He goes, it's about going deeper into, into narratives. So his movement there, narratively speaking, vertical. What does he do with Interstellar? Interstellar, he pushes his characters into dimensions that are adjacent to, but infinitely far away from. So he goes onto the Z axis. So between those three films, he actually exhausts the narrative space that you can tell a story. And then with having exhausted those dimensions, the Z axis, the X axis, and the Y axis, he then takes Tenet and he palindromatizes it. I've never seen um, time travel and the metaphysics of time represented in quite that way on, on, on screen. And I just thought just from a cinematic from a cinematography point of view and a conceptual point of view, I just was like, I was enthralled by it. I fucking loved it. So just from, an, just from a visceral point of view, I just loved the film. But um, obviously you guys want to talk about more like the, the, the ideas that they were. That well, they were I, I mean, yeah. So, so there's, there's, there's two questions I thought when I left the film. The one is, uh, well, there's three. The one is, is it conceptually coherent so is there a way of understanding the film such that yeah. what happens in the film can happen is yeah. it logically possible yeah. uh, the, se the second question is um the action scenes so like the physics of the action does that make sense third question is is it entertaining um yeah. and i thought it may be conceptually brilliant but not entertaining for me it was very <laughs> very entertaining like i was literally on the edge of my seat, even most, I mean, especially the first time, because you have no idea what to expect. Um, it was actually nice going to see it the second and third time because I knew what to expect. And so I kind of eased into it and I could enjoy the dialogue more. Mm. Um, I picked up some missing dialogue that I'd missed from the first time around. So that kind of enhanced the experience. Um, but I think it's coherent. I definitely think it's coherent. Whether the physics is possible or not, I mean, that's a different, I mean, that's a different thing. And maybe that's, that's not possible. But the, the B-theoretic conception of time, I think the idea that that is coherent. I felt this tension um, between sort of, because you're watching, you're trying to solve a puzzle while you're trying to en enjoy yeah. things go boom in reverse. And I yeah. found that difficult. So um, yes. I thought there was maybe something in, and as you say, multiple viewing. So the one is you just surrender and you go, I'm going to let yeah. this movie wash over me and assume movie magic. And yeah. then, but have your, your curiosity peaked enough to go, maybe there's a puzzle to be solved and I'm going to try to solve it next time. Uh, the way scenes are, are done, there's a lot of palindromatic 
iconography from, oh. from I think even the symbol that they, they've got at the turnstile for that company has got a kind of palindromatic aspect to it. Um, the music that they play in the final battle scene, um, where they've got the one team, when they're doing that temporal pencil movement in the final scene, uh, when they cut to the blue team, the, mu the music is going in reverse. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of really cool palindromatic um, uh, touches sprinkled right, right the way throughout. See yeah. that stuff like that feels like intellectual masturbation to me because like <laughs> you know, the, the viewer is not going to be aware of that yeah. uh, unless they read up or rewatch and rewatch and mm. really think about it. I, I mean, as a creator myself, I just that is not the way I would write a book. I I might include one or two little Easter eggs, but it feels like an like like an inside joke then, uh, and it feels like I'm doing it at the expense of the viewer or the reader rather than with the reader. Okay. And so that felt like that, that. That's why when Mark showed me the tenets um, uh, square, I was just yeah. just thought, oh well. If if I thought there was a problem with the movie before, I'm now very disappointed. Oh, yeah, that's uh, the nail in the coffin for you. I'd like to understand why you think it's conceptually coherent. Okay, so I just I just think that it's it's coherent as a B theory of time, right? So we're not dealing with branching. So there's no branching. And the idea is that what you're seeing on the screen is an a, an a theoretic representation of what is actually a B theoretic world. The B theory of time is tenseless. So the idea is that it's also known as the tenseless theory of time. And the idea is that um, the past, present, and future are, all have equal ontological status. So they're all like laid out like numbers on a, on a, on a number line. Right? When, you're, when you're at five, it doesn't mean that four doesn't exist and that six doesn't exist. They're, they're all stretched out, except here the sequence is not um, spatial as much as it is temporal. Right? So there's, you've got this extended structure that all exists. Um, and A theory is a, also called a dynamic theory of time, which is the idea roughly that you're moving through time. Right? The, the future doesn't yet exist. It has no real ontological status somehow uh, the present comes into being, that's real, and then there's a kind of the past is not real. And, you know, it doesn't have any ontological status anymore, um, and the future doesn't have any ontological status. And this is kind of like our phenomenological experience of time, right? So um, I'm aware of this moment, and then this moment, and then the moment that I was aware of is now the text, right? It's in the past. And the past doesn't have ontological status anymore. And there's going to be a moment 10 minutes from now, which doesn't exist yet, but we're kind of moving, moving through the timeline. So that's roughly the, the distinction. Um, and what I think this movie was looking at was definitely a tense theory of time. And everything that has happened does happen, will happen, and has always happened. So, and, they, and there's freedom of the world. There's no fatalism here, right? We can imagine another possible world um, which has a different timeline, a different sequence. Um, nevertheless, it is clearly determined that in this time frame, Neil always opens that lock. He always dies. The protagonist will always go back and start Tenet. His decisions are, in fact, causally relevant and they do determine it. But tenselessly, viewed in that kind of tenseless perspective, um, it's... It, it was, is, and will always be the case that that 
doomsday device never goes off. Um, that is no other way for that world to be. Interesting tension because you have this line that there's the, the future guys um, and that yeah. they live in a world that's been environmentally devastated um, because yeah. of people in the past. And yeah. so this is why they want to go and destroy the past so that their world um, is a habitable world. And this is sort of discussed very briefly. So, so Neil yeah. and the protagonist are having this chat on a boat while Neil's falling asleep. And he mentions the grandfather paradox. And it's sort of, the idea is like, well, clearly they don't think there's any consequence in killing us. We're their ancestors. If they destroy us, won't that destroy them? Let's bring us to the grandfather paradox. The what? If you went back in time and killed your own grandfather, how could you have been born to commit the act? What's the answer? There's no answer. It's a paradox. But in the future, those in power clearly believe that you can kick grandpa downstairs, gouge his eyes out, slit his throat without consequence. Could they be right? Doesn't matter. They believe it. So they're willing to destroy us. Can I go back to sleep now? No, I thought of something else. Great. That's reversing the flow of time. Doesn't us being here now mean it never happens? Could we stop them? Well, optimistically, I'd say that's right. Pessimistically? In a parallel worlds theory, we can't know the relationship between consciousness and multiple realities. Is your head hurt yet? Yes. Neil kind of says, look, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to them in the future. They're willing to roll the dice. So in other words, obviously the future in the, the, the parameters of the story is so bad um, that they really have no option. So they're, damned, they're kind of in a damned if you do situation and damned if you don't. I mean, just as a question of motivation, right? So they... they um, they're willing to roll the dice on the paradox, right? If it destroys them, it destroys them. Well, they were, they were screwed anyway. Kind of, that's what's into that. So they're willing to roll the dice on, on, on the paradox either way. They don't, there's like a nothing, there's a nothing to lose motivation. That's, and I got that on a second and third viewing much more, which I kind of missed or also wondered about what is the motivation for these people in the future to do this. And then I realized, okay, well, they're kind of in a, a catch 22. There's a conversation with the protagonist and Priya where mm -hmm. they make reference to there being um, parallel worlds where decisions in this yeah. world might have echoes in the other ones. And so yeah. it's interesting to know, do the, do the, do the characters in the film have their own theories about how time travel works? And they're not sure which one is correct, but the film has a view. Hello, Priya. What's going on? Where's Neil? Nursing Catherine Barton, who almost died because of you. What did I do? That's what you're going to do. In two days, you're going to have me dangle plutonium 241 in front of the world's most dangerous arms dealer. Now, I want to know why. You let Sador get hold of 241? No, I let him get a hold of the algorithm. So tell me about it, Priya. It's, it's unique. The scientist who built it took her own life so she couldn't be forced to make another. A scientist in the future? Generations from now. Why does she have to kill herself? You're familiar with the Manhattan Project? As they approached the first atomic test, Oppenheimer became concerned that the detonation might produce a 
chain reaction. And carving the wound. They went ahead anyway and got lucky. Think of our scientist as her generation's Oppenheimer. She devises a method for inverting the world, but becomes convinced that by destroying us, they're destroying themselves. The grandfather paradox. But unlike Oppenheimer, she rebels, splitting the algorithm into nine sections and hiding them the best place she can think of. The past, here, now. There are nine nuclear powers, nine bombs. Nine sets of the most closely guarded materials in the history of the world. The best hiding place possible. Nuclear containment facilities. Sato's lifelong mission, financed and guided by the future, has been to find and reassemble the algorithm. Why did they choose him? Because he was at the right place at the right time. The collapse of the Soviet Union. The most insecure moment in the history of nuclear weapons. How many sections does he have? After the 241 all nine. And that's why you're going to do things differently this time. To change things? So Catherine won't get hurt? So Seder won't get the algorithm. But if that universe can exist, we don't live in it. Well, let's try. You're going to warn me. No, I'm not. Ignorance is our ammunition. If you had known what the algorithm was, would you have let it fall into Seder's hands? You want Seder to get the last section. That is the only way he'll bring together the other eight. I was supposed to steal it, then lose it. Mission accomplished. I think you're right. I think the film has a view, and the film is a non-branching view. Um, they, the, the characters embedded in, in the narrative, um, yeah, I mean, Priya says, if, I mean, if there is that universe, then we're not, in, we're not in it. And I think Neil also says, look, one way kind of out of this paradox is if, we're in a, if there's a branching universe. But that's clearly not what we're shown. Christopher Nolan doesn't show us that. Christopher Nolan gives us a tenseless, what purports to be a tenseless and coherent view where there's no branching, right? And in a no branching view, it just is tenselessly the case that all those loops, all those loops form part of the structure of that universe. Um, and there's no other universe that, that exists. That it just always is the case that um, Kenneth Branagh's character, the Russian guy, fails in his attempt to uh, commit suicide and take the world with him. You know? um, and the protagonist always does, goes back and founds tenet. In other words, the pincer movement that the movie ultimately is based on, the meta pincer movement, that is the structure of that universe. So that it, all, it is, was, and always will be that structure. Explain to me the mechanism, right? So the, the mechanism for time travel in different movies is different. So, um, you know, there's the Back to the Future. You get into the, De the DeLorean and it, it in, a, in a snap, goes back to a certain point in time and then you move forward with everyone else, right? Yes. Now here what's happening is you go through a turnstile. It turns. You yeah. come out the other side and now you are moving backwards at the same rate of yeah, time yeah. that everyone is moving forwards. Now, sounds good, looks good, but then I think about it and I think, hold on, there's something so weird about this, right? Because I walk through the turnstile, I come out the other side and I'm going backwards at the same rate that everyone's going forwards. But they keep going forwards as I keep going backwards. Time is still flowing for the people in the original direction as my direction yeah, goes so, backwards. But your perspective is different. 
you're inverted. So take the normal direction through time, right? You see people going backwards in time. People that are currently time traveling look like they're going backwards with you. The phenomenology of what Christopher Nolan chose to make it look like is itself very tricky to get your mind around. But all that's happening, strictly speaking, is that as you move forward in time, like we normally do, when, when protagonist sees the other people going backwards and going moving backwards, those people who are moving backwards from protagonist's point of view are currently time traveling in the other direction. But then here's my problem, is if that's the case, how do you ever catch up with them? There's lots of scenes where you think what has happened is that someone has traveled back in time before the moment where you meet them and then is traveling forwards in time from before the moment you meet them so that you are now talking in the same direction and moving in the same direction. Well, that's just the, I mean, that's the conceit. That's just what, it, what he imagines it might look like for somebody moving in either direction. Is it logically possible, right? So, so I move forwards to a certain point, get through the turnstile, move backwards, right? Is it conceptually possible? Because my brain is struggling to, to yeah. compute. Is it conceptually possible for me to move forwards in time to a moment where I move backwards in time, then pass myself and turn around and move forwards again and meet myself? But that's, that's just what time travel is, right? I mean, time travel just is where, where the time travel is displacement in time is different from world time. No, but, but the normal time travel mechanism is instantaneous, right? You leave a point to go to an earlier point and then you move forward with everyone else. But here you're having to move backwards at the same rate as everyone is still moving forwards. So my brain is conks out at that point. Yeah. So, so here's one way of thinking about it. In the movie Primer, the rule is that the, they go into a box and by how long they sit in the box for, that's how far back in time they go. The age of the person, in other words, if you have to move at the same rate, so for example, if you want to go back a year in time, you can physically travel a year in time uh, backwards, but you've gained a year because you've had to do it at the same rate. So you've become a year older. Um, and so the age of the characters chronologically might be changing. Uh -huh. you, could be, you could be 40 uh, in 1983, um, even if you were born in 1983 uh, because of the way that you age and that the way that you loop back. That's why there's a scene where Sator dies uh, and he, he dies off, off the coast of Vietnam on the boat. But in chronological time, his character continues to exist because his physical death doesn't have to, it can proceed. He, he can, he can die. Um, but his story can continue because really what's happened is the future Sator traveled back to a time. And yeah, exactly. All that's happened there with Sator is that that was his future self that died. His earlier self is... It can't be his, his earlier self that died, otherwise he wouldn't have a future self. Exactly. So the Sator that dies on that boat at the end of the film, right, that's, that's the future Sator, right? But at that time, young, younger Sator, is at the opera house trying to get the, the part of the, the, the part of the, the algorithm, right? He, that younger self's future is to ultimately turn style himself and go back two weeks. So I think all that's coherent. The only added thing that makes it tricky for your mind is what Jason, you're talking about, is how that's represented, right? So how he imagines, so instead of it having an instantaneous jump, 
He's just imagining what happens if you actually had to go through reality, right? What would that look like? And he just plays around with that, that um, palindromatic phenomenology. So he says, he just says, imagine what it would look like if you were going forward through time. He just has it that those people who are actually moving backwards in time look like they're going with you like this. They're going backwards, but they're actually from their perspective, they're going forward and the world is going backwards. That's what it needs to be inverted in the rules of the game, you know, the, the movie. Um, and then that's why you have to invert yourself again at the turnstile in the past to realign yourself and move forward again through the street. Right? And that, that explains um, Mark's concern about, you know, they go back in time and why weren't they wearing masks? Well, at the time that they, they were, when, when you only have to wear a mask when you're inverted, which is traveling through against the stream of time, right? Then you invert yourself. You reorientate yourself, and now you're a time traveler. That's what it is to be a time traveler. You've gone back to that moment. You've inverted yourself, and now you don't need the mask anymore because now you're going with the flow of time again. And there just happens to be two iterations of you there, the future you and the younger you. So something that's quite curious about this is that it sets up loops, right? Essentially what the loops are are just trajectories of people in that universe. It gets compl complicated because you've got loops within loops, which just means that at any given time, you might have more than two iterations of a person. Right? You actually have <laughs> the original person who's still got to go through one loop, and then you've got a, that person who goes through the loop, goes back in time, and then loops again. And you just have these loops within loops but ultimately that forms part of the causal structure of the entire world. And what we see as the audience when we enter into the story is we start halfway. So we see the one half of the pincer movement, right? With all its mini loops, which obviously the character protagonist goes through. He does whatever loops he does. He sees how the story of his life unfolds. He gets, he knows which loops get done. He knows, that Neil has to ultimately sacrifice himself. And then he, he now has got all that knowledge of the loop-de-loops, all the mini loops and the one big loop. And now he's in a position to go back in time, start Tenet, recruit Neil into Tenet, and disseminate the information that he knows is necessary such that the future turns out in that successful way. Um, and that's really just all time travel is, right? I mean, <laughs> you live a certain aspect, you learn what happens, and if you have a time machine, you can go back in time and set up conditions such that that's how it turns out. It was, is, and will always be the case that Tenet was started by protagonists. And it was, is, and will always be the case that in this world, the way it's set up, it is such that Sator never wins. And it was, is, and always will be the case that Neil chooses to sacrifice himself. Um, and they all, and that doesn't mean they don't have freedom because they do make those choices. Um, it's just that there's no branching, right? So it's not fatalism. So there's a couple of ways you could think about it. The one is if you go onto Reddit, there's a, a, a sub, subreddit for tenants yeah. and there's a visualization of yeah. the passage of the characters throughout the film. Through the, all the loops. Yeah, in various locations, uh, which are in time. So in other words, there is, you know, off the coast of Vietnam on the boat at, yes. at a certain point, and they yes. go there back and forth. It sort of forms a V. Yes. We'll see the character yes. move 
see when they get inverted, you can see what they, what they go through. The other way of thinking about this is if you pick up a novel, the characters have, as you say, an, an a-theoretic conception of time. For them, the, they are making choices, they are progressing through time. For us, we can see that their story is bound. They're on, they, 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 they were making choices throughout, but there is only one way that book could be. You know, it is yes. the one in our hands. And then we can imagine that what Tennant is doing partly is taking the book, chopping it up and sticking the pages in funky orders so that your experience of time is disordered. So, yes. you know, we've got, uh, you know, think about Nolan's um, first series for Memento where you've Memento. got time going in different mo moments. So you sort of have, um, you know, the, the character going back in time 15 minutes apart and then the character going yeah. forward in time. And then the end of the movie is really the middle of the time. And so he sort of played with this, the narrative structure of time uh, in yeah. Memento. But here what you have is genuine time traveling. There's two interesting things I want to touch on. The one is time clones. So you point out that you can go back in time. Um, so you, you're, 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 let's say, Mark 1 is doing this you're doing this and you could sort of come yeah. across each other. And there's a sequence like yeah. that movie where the protagonist is fighting. Fight. Yeah. Um, and the one is moving backwards and the one is moving forwards. Yes. The other way it can go is that at some point, if you reinvert, both of you can be going forwards. Um, yes. You can catch up with your time clone, you know, um, and yes. it's interesting to then work out what, what happens to one of those beings. Um, at what point does the one, you know, why, why don't we now just have two separate beings who are persistent through time forwards? Oh, oh the re and the, re the reason for that is that the one, the one person's future is to go back into the past. Yeah. So what you have is the turnstile. So really, yeah. uh, in other words, you'll, you'll have the two for some moment, but one of them has to disappear yeah. back, into, back into the past. And yes, to, to, become, to now become, become the person that now goes on not going back in time, who yeah. keeps going on the trajectory. And you know, that person at the end of the film, presumably some people do that. I mean, we don't, we don't know where, where and what happens to them. The story ends for us as the, as the viewer. But presumably they do go on and, you know, they, they do whatever they want to do with their lives. Um, but what we do know, at least for the protagonist, is that his future is to go back and start Tenant and recruit Neil and begin the friendship that Neil has experienced his entire life. Which I thought just, I mean, getting out of the metaphysics, I thought that was a very um, poignant moment. I thought that was a very beautiful moment um, in the movie was that ending, that ending conversation when the protagonist dawns on the protagonist um, that Neil has to sacrifice himself. Right? He has to do that loop-de-loop, -loop, that one small loop within a loop to go back and open the gate, right? Because he has always opened the gate for them. Otherwise, they couldn't be standing there having that conversation. Um, and he realizes that, and Neil says to him, you know, for me, it's been an entire life. For, for you, the friendship is just beginning. For me, it's been my entire life. And there was something very, like, I'm just talking from a human perspective, very moving there about, about their friendship because um, the movie is itself not very big on emotion. It's very cognitive. And it was very nice. I thought, I found it, you know, getting choked up a bit at the end there because it was like you really got a glimpse of the depth of caring that Neil had for, for the protagonist and which the protagonist would come to appreciate in his own life when he goes back in time to start Tenant and ultimately recruit from a literary perspective. The 
struggle between um, meaning and nihilism. So for example, think about Sator, right? Sator is the personification of nihilism. It's, he's self-involved to the extent that if he's going to die, he's taking the universe with him, right? There's nothing to live for in his life. He's narcissistic, he's selfish. He represents philosophically nihilism, right? the idea that there's nothing worth living for. Right? The universe is a harsh, cruel, and uh, horrible place, and there's nothing, worth, uh, uh, there's nothing for it. What injects meaning into the film? How is meaning rescued? It's interesting. It's not because of what the protagonist does. It's because of what Neil does. Neil sacrifices himself ultimately. And this has, I mean, I don't think Nolan did this intentionally, but there's definitely, it ties into the Western canon, right? I mean, what is the greatest sacrificial story in the history of the Western canon? I mean, it's Jesus, right? I mean, whether you believe the story is there or not, what does, I mean, it's there in the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The idea is that Jesus suffers the crucifixion so that we are all rescued, right, from nihilism and despair and death, right? And there's something very interesting thematically about, and from a philosophical perspective about how we get meaning in this world is that meaning is produced, at least in, in the story, through sacrifice, right? Um, Sator doesn't sacrifice anything of himself, right? He's willing to sacrifice the world for himself, whereas Neil sacrifices himself for the world. And I think that there's, and there you've got this palindromatic image there in their thematic representations, right? So you've got nihilism and meaning, and you've got Sator sacrificing the world for himself, and you've got Neil sacrificing himself for the world. So there's, even in this, and I thought that was so amazing, that the palindromatic representation of those two characters. And then it raises something very interesting. Normally in a narrative, we think that the protagonist is the hero, right? In other words, it is a necessary connection that exists between being the protagonist and being the hero. And in this movie, they come apart because I think the real hero in this narrative is not protagonist. It's Neil. Neil is the hero. And it raises this really interesting question about is the protagonist, from a literary perspective, is the protagonist always the hero? And I think the answer in this story is no. Because Neil's not the protagonist, definitely not the protagonist, right? But he is the hero of the story. And he injects meaning into an, a meaningless world through sacrifice and love of humanity. Are you really going back in? I'm the only one who could have got that door open in time, right, Ives? I don't know any locksmiths as good as you. See? It's me in there again. Leaving another pass in the fabric of this mission. Neil, wait! Just saved the world. Can't leave anything to chance. But can we change things if we do it differently? What's happened's happened. Which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world. It's not an excuse to do nothing. Fate? Call it what you want. What do you call it? Reality. Now let me go. 
Now, you never did tell me who recruited you, Neil. I only guessed by now. You did. Only not when you thought. You have a future in the past. Years ago for me, years from now for you. You've known me for years. For me, I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship. But for me, it's just the beginning. We get up to some stuff. You're gonna love it. You'll see. This whole operation's a temporal pincer. Whose? Yours. You're only halfway there. I'll see you at the beginning, friend. There's also, as you say, this other kind of narrative echo. So the way that um, the film starts is there's a sequence where the protagonist gets captured and he has the cyanide pill with him and he mm. reaches a point where in order to not divulge information, he swallows the pill um, yes. and then sort of realizes that he has been put through a test um, yes. that he hasn't really swallowed a pill. And what you get is the sense that because the protagonist has realized that you need someone like Neil who will sacrifice themselves to save humanity, that this has to be inculcated into tenant, including with him. Um, yes. Yes. This is the bit that I want to get to now is what's interesting is how information travels in the film. So they, they sort of say at one point that um, uh, ignorance is key, I think is the sort of idea mm -hmm. that they're trying to encapsulate. And you have the sense of, you can find things out through the time pincer move. And this is done, I suppose, most explicitly with um, the car chase sequence um, where what the characters are trying to find out is where, where's the box? You know, we're sort of playing this like egg game and I'm, I'm moving the thing around. It's the, you know, it's the three card Monty and where is it wound up? And the way that you find out is that, you know, the one version of you has some knowledge about what happened in the past and can yes. sort of, transmit that information to a different version yeah. of you. And I wonder yeah. how that works, if that makes sense. That follows the same trajectory as the, um, I mean, that's just all you're talking about there is the flow of information is just the causal transmission of symbols, right? I mean, what is language? It's something like the transmission of symbols that carry semantic content. I mean, once you, once you can move objects through space, you can, you can transmit entities that can represent to entities. And then if they're going back to, a time when they exist, they can transmit information to themselves, you know, provided that they're, they reinvert, you know, because otherwise it's just going to sound backwards, given the rules of the story. Um, so I think the flow of information just follows the flow of the objects. And in this case, that's any object that has been inverted. Um, and that, I mean, that is the whole, I mean, what you just described was the whole purpose of the pincer movement, right? What is, I mean, if you could go back in time now, um, and give yourself information, that would be a temporal pincer movement, right? I mean, that's what time travel permits you to do. You gather information about how things turn out. You now, are, you have knowledge of something that you didn't have at the earlier time, and then you go back and you give it to yourself. Or you give, you give those specific items of knowledge that are sufficient to ensure that you get the knowledge that you need and that events turn out the way you want it to happen. And I think that, that's, that that was interesting for me as well is, is the withholding of information was important in this movement, right? Knowing when to divulge. In other words, that giving information is itself a causal lever 
that can either keep the track going where it's going or switch tracks, so to speak. Now I'm speaking, I'm speaking figuratively here. But and it, it's that was because well. there are no different tracks, right? There's exactly. no branching. Exactly. Right. So, so it's figurative. But the idea is that we can still think counterfactually. And clearly the characters are thinking counterfactually because even at the end, he says, protagonist says to Neil, are you going back? And he says, I can't risk it. I, I just saved, we just saved the world. If I choose not to go back now, what am I risking? So he chooses to go back and, and kill himself in the loop. Right? So, which means he still can conceive. He's thinking counterfactually but he chooses not to indulge in that counterfactual. Right? He chooses not to choose differently such that the counterfactual would be actual. Right? So the, the mindfuck is in, in that moment where he decides to go backwards and, and says, I'll go backwards because we avoided the end of the world. Um, you might say, but, but what if he didn't choose to go backwards, right? Oh, intensely it makes no sense to ask that. Right, because, because if he chose differently, then he wouldn't be in the position to choose that way. It's just that he did go backwards, and so he will choose that way. The way to say it, and this is why I keep repeating it this way, he, he, he did, will, and always make the choice that he made. That's the way to say it, tenselessly. So in other words, you cover all the tenses. It's, it's, not, it's not a case where he could do something different now. Why can't he? Because he's always and forever made the choice to go back in time hmm. in that world. So the libertarian in me is silently raging. Only a compatibilist can, can have this conception of time and say that you're free in it. Um, the incompatibilist, the libertarian in me, wants to say, well, no, I want an a theory of time where um, the, the future can branch and that when I travel back in time, I can choose different branches. Yeah. I, mean, I think then you have to have branching because otherwise you instantiate a contradiction. There's two episodes that we've run that, that are quite important to understand what we're talking about. So the one is uh, with Helen Robertson on time, time travel. And uh, the other one is with Mark Leon on freedom um, and determinism. And once you watch those, you'll understand what these terms mean. And then I guess this discussion becomes uh, more intelligible. So I want to push back against this, this sort of notion that you'd have to have a branching universe to make sense of free will. So do Romeo and Juliet have free will in the play? I would say yes. Those characters uh, are, are free to make a whole series of decisions. We don't think of them as being automaton bots. Okay? Is it necessarily the case that they will die at the end in a tragic manner? Yes. That is the only possible way that it could be because that is the text as it is written. Oh, no. So it, it, uh, it, the, the interesting thing is that insertion of the word necessarily, right? And, and I, can, I, can just, I, can see, I can see it moving, the cogs moving through Aaron's head, is that when you said the word necessarily, Aaron, Aaron said, no, it, it is the case that they die, but it's not necessarily the case. As soon as you insert necessarily, then, you, then it's fatalism, and that's stronger than compatibilism. There's something called a scope fallacy or a modal scope fallacy. Um, and it's the fallacy of moving um, illicitly um, without noticing uh, the scope of a modal operator in a, in a proposition from a something that might be true, de, what philosophers would say, de dicto of the proposition to de re of the thing. So it's certainly necessary that in that world, 
in any possible world that could have been, there is a possible world where Romeo and Juliet die. It doesn't follow that Romeo and Juliet die in every possible world. And fatalism makes that, that claim, that in every possible way the world could have been, Romeo and Juliet die. That's like saying that every book that contains Romeo and Juliet, any way the story could have been, will always have them dying. No matter how the story is written, they will die in every, in every version. There's no story in which you could write a story where they live, right? Um, and that's clearly false. But what is true is that in every way the story is written, it will always be true that there is at least one story where they do die. And that's the story that Shakespeare wrote, for example. So we've got to be careful not to shift the scope of the, of the modality. In this case, it's the, the lethic modality of necessity. Yeah, I think that seems like a powerful distinction to draw, which means that, in other words, uh, Romeo and Juliet do have free will. It is the case that the play, Romeo and Juliet, is written in a particular way, but it could have been written differently. And in those other possible plays, they could have done otherwise. And so therefore they had free will, even though things happened to not a particular manner. Um, and, and I think that's what's going on, as you say, in Tenet, is that the characters are making free choices. Um, it just so happens to be the case that there is one fixed reality as to how it all turns out. And in that fixed reality, it is always the case that Neil dies. Um, it's always the case that Sator fails and the protagonist goes back in time and tells the whole story to Neil. Yeah. That's the compatibilist story, right? Yeah. The incompatibilist says something else. And I think both Aaron and I are incompatibilists. So the incompatibilist says, that's not freedom. Um, <laughs> that's not enough for freedom. So that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an incompatibilist in the sense that I think that the, I think that once you, if determinism is true, I, I find it hard to, to see how people could have freedom. So I, I probably agree with the libertarian that in a necessary condition for freedom is something like the principle of alternative possibilities. More than just in some other possible play, Romeo and Juliet yes. don't die. Yes. That, yes. that it must be possible that given the play that was written, um, Romeo and Juliet don't die. Um, yeah, I just, think, I just think that that can't be, I just think that that's false, right? So I yes. think that that's a necessary condition. I just don't think that it can obtain. And a, 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 libert a libertarian will say, yes, that's a necessary condition and it can obtain. Yeah. And in fact does obtain. Yeah, so you're what's called a hard determinist, which is, the, the pessimistic uh, incompatibilist, and I'm a libertarian, which is the optimistic uh, yeah. incompatibilist. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, that's, and then, the and then the compatibilist is also known as the soft determinist who thinks that you can get, quote unquote, the best of both worlds. Um, that determinism um, isn't incompatible with a kind of robust freedom, that you can combine them, and that's why it's a compatibilist. If the libertarian says, I want to read Romeo and Juliet, and I want, every time I read it for the outcomes to be different because those characters should be making free choices and different things could happen. Then I want to say that they've, they've embraced something that's impossible because other books could have been written. Those characters are free. Just there's a particular way that they have to be in this book. Um, so I'm saying you want a particular account of freedom, which allows for, let's say these other kinds of possibilities to have played out. It just so happens out on this one, this is how it played out. Um, and this is the way it is, it is, it is written you know? and it could not be any other way in this book 
in all the other books, all the possibilities in the world, all the freedom in the world, all the choice. You're talking about something else. You're not talking about freedom. You're talking about something else. I don't know what that is. Uh, it might be delusionary freedom, like the character at the time thinks he's free, but that seems very different to me to well, actually be. The literary implication is that you have to say every single book you read, none of those characters had free will. Um, in other words, you can say you believe in the, in the concept of free will. I think that people can make free choices. Just no literary character ever can have it because the book is printed, the film is etched into right. a, a laser disc. Okay. None of these characters I'll, are free. And I'll that seems that odd. I'll bite that bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll bite that bullet. I'll say, yes, it is the case that no literary characters are free, but we are not literary characters. The future is not yet written. So that's the A A theory of time, right? The future does not yet exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only wrinkle to all of this, of course, is, I mean, it's a debate about whether the A theory of time is true or the B theory of time is true. Um, Most physicists, for reasons that have to do with um, general relativity, um, think that B theory is correct. So eh, general relativity. <laughs> 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 yeah, I suppose that's that's one response one could make to to, to one of the greatest advancements in theoretical physics. <laughs> I suppose that's that's one way you could, could get around it. <laughs> I can't renege on incompatibilism, but I could renege on libertarianism. So it just seems to me like if, if you think that, that those fictional characters have free will, that's that what they're doing is just not enough for free. What they have is just not enough. It's not sufficient for freedom. Um, but, but you, you might say, well, there just isn't the kind of book or the kind of world where people would have freedom. And I would say, okay, fine. But you know, uh, and then, of course, the compatibilist is going to turn around and say, fine, what, I have, what I'm giving you is not freedom, it's freedom star. But that's a yeah. lot better than nothing. There is a certain way the world is. You can't wish your way into a different reality. And as I say, to say, I, I wish Romeo and Juliet as printed turned out differently. You can wish all you like. It is the way it is. And that might be the way with, with our reality. It might very well be we live in a universe that is a B-theoretic of time. There is nothing we can do to change its course. We can feel as if we're making choices, but it is a fixed printed book and it turns out the way it turns out. And we might prefer it if it wasn't that way, but that's what we have. Uh, there's one other little bit I thought I'd touch on, which is this other interesting moment of communication. So um, the protagonist uh, gives Sator's um, wife a phone. He says, if, if things ever get dicey, leave me a voice message. And there's a mm-hmm. sequence where the, the message says, um, this may be nothing and I might be overreacting, but at this time, at this location, you know, um, I'm a little concerned. And so the protagonist then is able to travel back to that time. He sees Priya, Priya's about to assassinate her, and he then preempts it and shoots Priya. Okay. Now I take it that um, she could never undo her own death. In other words, if she says, I've just been shot, please travel back in time to kill the shooter so I don't get shot before I get shot. That's not open to her. She will always be shot. Um, but the sense of things might not be turning out so well, you've still got a moment where you can act. Uh, Kenneth Branagh's wife does, will, and always will phone at that moment. And, when, and as the protagonist says, when she phones, um, the moment she does that, from his perspective, he gets the message. Right? So he, 
he just, at the moment she, from her perspective, picks up the phone, that is a message, as he says, for posterity. It's the same way that Sator talks to the people in the future, right? He goes and he buries his time capsule with his notes, and then they dig up the time capsule immediately there in the future, put inverted gold bars, and then invert everything back to him. I mean, that's how the communication works between him and the future. So it's the same principle that's working there with Kenneth Branagh's wife, right? um, Sator's wife. Um, and it's the same principle there, right? The moment she picks up that phone, it's tenselessly true. She, there's never, there's no, to put it differently, there's, there's no way in that world where she could choose not to pick up that phone because protagonist is always there to shoot Priya before Priya, you know, erases her um, uh, and kills her. So um, I think the same, that's the same principle there. So I think all of those, those examples of loops are consistent within a B-theoretic um, um, paradigm. There's some other thing that's what the film is doing differently about the communication of information. If we think about, let's say, um, the movie Looper, where someone goes back in time and they, they kill someone, or, and there's a, there's a sequence in Looper where someone's fingers are being chopped off, and they're cutting yeah. from the past to the future, and you're seeing in the future the fingers fall off. So what you have is the instantaneous transmission of things happening in the past to this yes. future event, and that yes. kind of is nonsensical. What's interesting here is that it's not that I can go back in time and tell my past self something my past self will then always the question is if i go and tell him will that version now carry the information through and then it comes back you know um so thinking about you know are you are you sort of sending information at, at a at a yeah, you're not, yourself you're to not some sending, event? it's it's less like sending information and more like instantiating what was always sent <laughs> it's that's really what's happening it's not you're not sending new information the world the world is because it always was and the world was because you're always going to go back in time so so that's what ensures the consistency so it's not like you're you're going back in time and changing things that that doesn't make sense it's just that going back in time is part of what made the world to be, the, to be such that you went back in time. Your previous self always encountered your future self or the information exactly. that was relayed by your exactly. future self. Exactly. So, so, so long as you are comfortable with the loop, you should yes. be comfortable with the information. I think yes. where, where you're uncomfortable with the information, Mark, is that you, you, you're unclear about the loop being okay. And frankly, so am I. And that's why I don't like the B theory of time. Um, uh, you know, the loop, I think, does cause cognitive dissonance, but I think that cognitive, cognitive dissonance is correct. Yeah. 